I'm so thrilled that Peter Nevins can join us all the way from darkest north homewards. Very yeah. far, isn't it? It's in the middle it of the a, woods. It's a journey. Yeah. Uh, so you are so welcome here, Peter. Thank you for coming to speak to us tonight. Thanks for having me. Could you just um, introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about... North Homewood, where you are at the moment, and yeah. your family? Yeah, so my name is Peter. Uh, I've been married to Kristen for, in December, it'll be 21 years. Uh, I got four, kid, four kids and a foster son. So my oldest son, Solomon, just went off to uni um, last week, I think it was. Not last week, week before. Uh, so that's kind of crazy. And then we've got 16, 15, 12, 11-year-old foster son, and a black lab called Alice, who's 10. She's lovely. If you want her, she's yours. Um, no, she's so she, lovely. She is. You can have her. <laughs> um, no, she, she's, she's really lovely. I'm in North Homewood, which is uh, kind of Dorking area. It's just sort of south of Dorking. I've been the vicar there for two years. Um, and Oh man, what do you want to know about North Homewood? It's kind of a crazy parish, actually. It's it's quite eclectic, and that it's in one sense quite rural, and there's a lot of farmland. Um, in another sense, it's quite like sort of middle class commuter into London kind of thing, and then also has. Um, quite a number of estates, uh, you know, housing estates. And so there's a real sort of hodgepodge of, of, of different kinds of people, which I actually quite like. Um, it always makes things interesting and you get to meet new people and it's fantastic. Sounds amazing. So yeah. I'm not going to lie, it doesn't sound like you come from round here. You've got a bit of an accent about yeah. you. So where are you from and what brought you to England? Yeah, so I'm, I'm from America. Um, some people are like, are you Canadian? Because Canadians get upset if you ask if they're American, but Americans don't get upset <laughs> if you ask if they're Canadian. Um, my son, Zeke, he says, Canadians are just Americans made in France, you know? And so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, born and raised in a city called Indianapolis south, a little bit east of Chicago, bounced around a little bit in adulthood, Colorado, Pittsburgh, Chicago area, most recent to moving to uh, Surrey. Um, I was finishing a degree, and uh, we were like, we're as nimble as we'll ever be as a family with four small kids. Let's not put a border <laughs> or a boundary to where God might call us, and uh, called us to continue on doing youth work um, at Christchurch Virginia Water. Yeah, and then uh, yeah. I couldn't do that job very well anymore, so it was time <laughs> to become a vicar. Um, yeah. uh, the classic <laughs> route into vicarhood. Yeah, yeah, like, dude, how do we... Um, it's too close yeah. to home. Yeah, anyway, so, yeah, yeah, so... Amazing. Now, Peter and I have known each other for a while. We're really, really good friends, but I don't think I've ever asked you this really personal question before. Awesome. Now, this is my love language. What is your favorite pudding? Oh, see, now that's a linguistic kind of challenge because I think pudding, and that's a certain type of dessert in America, right? And my favorite American pudding, which is like a mousse, <laughs> is pistachio pudding. But if we're talking about British dessert, 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 that's really, that's a, a really difficult one. And I think I'd have to go with, um, oh, cheesecake. You can do sticky it. You can do pudding. it. Sticky toffee oh, right now? Sticky toffee Let's pudding. Let's go sticky toffee. Yeah. Can't go wrong. Good choice. <laughs> yeah. You've got Round some support here. Yeah. Well, we. <laughs> I love the heckling on the puddings. This is great. Yeah, it's good. This is new depths, new depths of the six. I love it. Peter, we are so thrilled that you're here. You're going to speak to us on the prodigal son very shortly. Yeah. Why don't we just uh, pray for you as, uh, as we begin? Cool. Lord, thank you so much for bringing Peter here to us tonight. I pray that you would anoint the words of his lips. Lord, would you speak through him? Would you give us open hearts to hear what you have for us? And would you be with us all as we listen? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. 
Excellent. So um, this evening, we're going to talk about uh, the prodigal son. Now, I want to be really good on time. If you know me, and none of you do except for Tom and Megan, really, I can really go on for a while. So this is going to be really disciplined. All right, so we're going to kind of jump right in in a certain sense. The parable of the prodigal son is kind of like a certified hood classic. This is one of these that we all know it. We've heard it a thousand times. Um, and, and if you haven't heard it a thousand times, it's one of the ones that you'll learn quite quickly. Um, in your life going to church and being a Christian and that sort of thing. Now, I don't know about you if you've ever planned to run away. I remember when I was like, I think maybe eight or nine years old and I was like, that's it, I'm running away. And so I got all of my favorite things, all of the stuff that I loved, right? And I packed, I found a little bag and I packed it all in my bag and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna put it under my bed. And then at the opportune moment, I'm out of here. And so then I proceeded to play for the rest of the afternoon and completely forgot about my plan to run away. And all I knew is like, I can't find any of my favorite stuff anywhere. (laughs) And it must've been like months later, I had to clean up my room where I was looking for something. My mom was like, Peter, check under your bed or, or, or whatever. And I was like, my bag with all my favorite stuff. It was, it was like, it was like Christmas. Um, but this is a story in some sense about a runaway. And in this story, what I want to do this evening is locate God in the story, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want to locate us, each of us, in this story. Now, I, we're all different. We're all peculiar. We all have our little idiosyncrasies and we're all, we're all unique, just like everybody else. And I get that. But hopefully somewhere in this sort of looking at different sorts of people, you might be able to find yourself and respond to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that. So why don't I read the story and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump into locating God and ourselves in it. So this is Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there, he w- there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, is, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So this story we find on the heels of two other stories, also about lost things being found, a lost sheep, a lost coin. And Jesus is telling these three stories about searching out and finding lost things while he's spending time with Pharisees. Now, some of you know a bit about Pharisees, some of you don't. Pharisees were a group of Jewish people in the first century, and there were kind of three things really that marked them out. One is they took following the law of Moses really, really seriously. Like, really seriously. All the Old Testament law, they believed if they obeyed it properly, then the Messiah would come. And so they made all kinds of extra rules around those laws to try and make it so no one was breaking the law of Moses so that the Messiah would come and throw off Rome and they could be independent and free. Wahoo, happy days. All right? So that was the first thing. Second thing that they was unique about them is they believed firmly in the bodily resurrection of the dead. They believed that the whole Old Testament taught that after human beings die, the body that they have lived in decomposes or it's burned up or it becomes shark poop or whatever else, right? And then at some period of time, at the end of time, there is a resurrection of the dead and everyone who ever has been will be raised with a physical body and they will either experience salvation and eternal life or judgment and condemnation. And so that led to the third thing that they did and that is they were missionaries. Most of us don't clock this. But the Pharisees were missionaries. That's why Jesus rebuked them and said, you cross land and sea to make one convert and then make them twice the son of hell that you are. But Pharisees were missionaries. They believed in God's promise to Abraham that they would be a blessing to the nations. And so they would go out to other nations to tell them about the God of Israel so that they could repent, believe, and belong to Israel and have the hope of bodily resurrection. And so Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees. And as he's speaking to these Pharisees, these particular Pharisees, there's a few things going on in this story. One is that the younger son who's like, hey, pops, give me my junk. I want to go. All right. They're like, that's like the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. They have all of these blessings from God, their actual life. The fact that it rains, the scripture says God causes his rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. And the rain, in this sense, is a blessing. It's what makes the crops grow. And the Gentiles have taken all of this general blessing from God, the blessing of life, the blessing of the environment, the blessing of crops, the blessings of whatever, and they've kind of taken that and gone, I'm going to do my thing with it, God. Thanks, but no thanks. You stay over there while I hang out over here and have my good life. 
right? And so the Gentiles are like the younger brother. And then the older brother is kind of like these particular Pharisees who are kind of disinterested in the younger brother who's been rebellious, a bit resentful of the younger brother who's been rebellious, and aren't particularly cool with how the father, who is God in the parable, welcomes back and receives these Gentiles. Right, so that's one particular level that we see this. And we kind of see this play out perhaps in our life as the church. You know, maybe we're like, yeah, we go to church. Yeah, we know Jesus. Yeah, we, we, we believe in God and we should be missional. We should tell people about Jesus. That's a really good thing. But then if the wrong sorts of people who don't yet believe in Jesus show up in church, it's like, oh man, don't mess up our stuff. Like, you don't, like, hold on. You need to learn how we do things here. Right, And we're not necessarily always ready to welcome them in unless we're like reporting numbers back to the diocese. We're like, check it out, all right? So there's one sense where we can kind of locate ourselves as churchgoers or people who are like maybe checking out church for the first time in a while or maybe never ever. And it's like the first time, you're gonna go, ooh, there's a little bit of tension there. We need to, we need to kind of work out. We need to work that out. All right, so then that's kind of like the, 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 the sort of Big thing. And then we kind of take it down a little bit more personally. And we can identify ourselves, right, in, like, like personally, not just collectively, but personally, perhaps as the prodigal son, the one who's run away. The one who's been like, hey, God, you know, whatever, you're there, that's cool, but I've got a life I want to live. And maybe sometime after I'm like out of my prime, whenever I conceive that to be, yeah, you know, I mean, you're a young person right now. You're like, dude, all right, I'm cool with coming to church. Like my parents make me. And actually, Holly, does, Holly right? No, phew. I had that like moment. I'm like, oh, uh, uh, Holly's cool. She does a good job. But actually, there's some parties I want to go to. There's some people I want to hang out with. There's some experiences I want to have. And maybe I'll do that classic thing where I'll go to college and I'll go off to uni. I'll work in London. And then I'll migrate down towards Wimbledon and Isha. And then I'll have kids. And, you know, and then it's time to get them baptized. And so we'll start going to church then, and that's when we'll take faith seriously. But right now, dude, I'm chilling in the, in the, in the, in the far country and digging my life there. Right, so you might say, um, that's kind of where I feel like I'm leaning, or maybe that's where you've inhabited. You're a bit older. You're like, actually, I have lived in the far country. I actually know what it's like to be in the pig slop. And, and, and I, need to, I need to come back to the Father. I need to know how much the Father loves me. And we have this, this picture here of the Father as a Middle Eastern man who wouldn't go about running, but he's sitting sort of on the porch. He's sitting out with his eyes on the horizon, waiting for this lost son of his to make a return. And when he does, hustles out, gives him a hug, and says, welcome back, welcome back, Let's party. I love you. This is fantastic. And then we have the older brother. Again, we could locate ourselves perhaps as somebody who's always gone to church, always done the right thing, always obeyed, always kind of done what we're supposed to do and kind of sit back and going, where's my party? I've been like faithfully coming to church whenever my parents told me to and I haven't grumbled. I haven't complained. I've memorized the Bible verses in Sunday clubs. I've sat through services where I didn't want to sit through. And you know what? It seems like everyone else in the world has a blessing. And now this rebellious person is coming in. Everyone's like, oh, look at the new people at church. Oh, what about me? Everyone's making a fuss over the new folks coming. What about me? 
And we can feel that resentment. And actually, there's a sense wherein Jesus then is located. A couple of books that are interesting. Sorry, I should have said this at the outset, but a couple of books that are interesting. Easy reads, kind of thin. One is The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Some of you have probably read it. And the other one is The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nouwen. Uh, many of you have probably read that. They're easy reads. A lot of stuff I'm talking about right now is in those books and you can really mull over. But we have Jesus who rather than being the resentful older brother who's like, I always do the right thing, actually is the older brother that we always should have had. The son of the father who doesn't sit resentfully but goes out searching and seeking the brother that he loves, you, you and me. And so we can locate ourselves either in the rebelliousness of, of the younger son, in the sort of resentment of the older son. We can locate ourselves either corporately as a group of people who struggle with this dynamic of welcoming other people in. But I want to actually turn the facet of the gem just a little bit on a kind of a peculiar angle. And I want to think about this parable through the lens of an inheritance and the fact that the Pharisees were interested in the resurrection of the body. And then I want to revisit this parable after we look at a couple of different passages written by the Pharisee who became a Christian called, we call the Apostle Paul. How are we doing on time, by the way, bro? Good, awesome. I've never asked that before in my life. I'm just... <laughs> forgiveness rather than permission, right? Okay, anyhow. So Ephesians chapter one, Paul is writing this incredible like letter in this incredible first chapter all about our salvation that we have and about how God planned our salvation and he, he's executed it in Christ. He sealed it with his spirit. And in verse 11, Paul writes, in him, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, here, here's, here's the real bit. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I would argue in Ephesians chapter one, but also more explicitly in Romans chapter eight, this redemption, this inheritance is our bodily resurrection. That this physical life is not our one and only life to live. That when Jesus promises eternal life to those who believe, he's not just talking about a quality of life now, and he's not talking about an infinite spiritual existence after this body dies, but that the physical bodily promises of the gospel are true, real, and finally realized when our body is raised from the dead. The redemption of our bodies is our inheritance as sons, male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free, whoever you are. And I get there from Romans chapter eight as well. Romans chapter eight, beginning in verse 22, we'll start. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the last you know, period of time, there's been a real positive reaction or course correction to a notion of the gospel that's pie in the sky when you die, right? That the goal is to be a, a sort of disembodied spirit in a very bright context like this stage right now. And if we had cheek muscles, they'd be so strong, you know, from all the squinting. And evidently harps are dope. We just don't know it yet. Like that's, and there's been sort of a, a course correction on that saying, no, 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 the gospel, the biblical mind understands the promises of God as being very material and physical. And so we should expect as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ to see our bodies affected things like healing. We should see physical manifestations of God's spirit in us, like perhaps speaking in tongues or words or pictures or prophecy. And we should see as a result of the gospel in the physical life we live in now, things like structural justice, systemic justice, that the plight of the poor would be alleviated, that the pride of the, wealth would be con- or the wealthy would be confronted. And that is true. That's true. The gospel has a very material, tangible, physical consequence. But then some of us also, in that knowledge, perhaps are a bit frustrated. Bordering on cynical or skeptical. The gospel isn't working for me materially. I've not been healed my loved one's not been healed. I still, still see injustice in the world. Or, hey, we just sang about Jesus breaking every chain, breaking every chain, breaking every chain or whatever, but that's all good, great, and fine. I still feel quite bound. I'm still struggling with mental illness. I'm still struggling with anxiety. I still like, exam season comes around, I'm like, oh! And every time that girl looks at me, I'm like, and I got stuff going on and I don't know what's gonna happen with my job and I don't know what's gonna happen with this, that, or the other thing and climate change and all the rest of it. We go, hold on. These promises seem really, really big and their realization in life as I'm observing them actually seems quite small by comparison. I'm not sure if the gospel works. And I want to go back to these, this Ephesians and this Roman passage. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. A deposit is by nature fractional. If I want to buy a house, listen, we're in Surrey, so that's like, I don't know, let's just, I'm not good at math. Let's call it 500 grand. That'll be easy. Half a million. And I'm going to put a 10% deposit, 50,000 pounds. 50,000 pounds is a lot of money. But 500,000 pounds is way more. I want to encourage us 
don't despise the day of small things, the Old Testament prophet says. Those deposits in your life where you see this foretaste of resurrection. And sometimes we do experience healing and we do see justice happen sometimes. And we do see words and pictures and prophecy. And we do see people taking care of God's creation. Don't despise the day of small things. Neither put your hope in something that isn't attainable yet and isn't intended to be. No one hopes for what they already have, but we wait for it patiently. We believe in the resurrection of the body because Jesus raised will be raised and all of creation, which is groaning, will be raised with us. And so we have that sure and certain hope. So in locating God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this story, God the Father is longing for us, watching for us, waiting for us. God the Son is the perfect older brother who doesn't just sit back, but pursues us, seeks and saves the lost, and gives us his Holy Spirit to be a deposit in us, guaranteeing our inheritance. So we don't have to say, God, give me all the good stuff of believing in you now so I can have the good life as I understand it but so that I can have hope of life in the body where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. And may we then also be a people who understand the nature of that deposit, live with that hope, and then join Jesus in seeking and saving the lost, welcoming them in and celebrating with our Father when they do. Amen. Amen. I'm going to turn it back over to Tom and Holly to lead us in response.